Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Sarah Lean. Based in Glasgow, Sarah is a popular international speaker, cloud architect, Microsoft Azure MVP, and founder of the Glasgow Azure User Group, in addition to her role as lead DevOps advocate at Octopus Deploy. You can follow her on Twitter at TechieLass, and check out her blog at TechieLass.com, and watch her videos on YouTube at YouTube.com slash TechieLass. You can also support her work at BuyMeACoffee.com slash TechieLass. Sarah is the author of the book, Developer Relations for Beginners, What to Know and How to Get Started. In the book, Sarah gives you a behind-the-scenes look at developer relations, or DevRel, sharing experiences from her work in the industry and helping readers decide if it might be the right career path for them. In this interview, we're going to talk about Sarah's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a content creator. So thank you very much, Sarah, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yeah, that was a great introduction, and thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in tech? Um, yeah, so I kind of ended up in tech, maybe not necessarily by choice. So I grew up on a dairy farm. So I was big into farming, maybe not enough to take on the farm at the time. But when I was starting to pick university subjects and mentioned to my parents that I wanted to go to like agricultural college, they were quite against me doing that to be honest um probably the traditional like farming isn't for girls you shouldn't be doing that kind of attitude plus the fact that farming is a 24 7 365 day a year job and doesn't necessarily pay very well or give you that proper work-life balance that we're all trying to achieve um and they spotted that I was quite into computing and that computing would be the future so they kind of encouraged me to go down the computing route. And then I ended up at university studying computer science. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I got into tech. And then from there, I've I've had various different jobs and stuff like that. But, yeah, so I initially got pushed away from a male-orientated industry into another male-orientated industry. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I kind of have a bit of an interesting tale there, I suppose. It's it's a believe it or not the size of farms is something that's come up on this podcast in the past. Um, I'm from a province in Canada called Saskatchewan. Both my parents grew up on farms, okay. um, uh, and you know it's it's funny like sort of the the, the um, actually both my 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 dad my grandfather on my father's side their farm was very small. My grandfather on my mother's side had kind of a bigger farm, but in Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada on the Great Plains we have these giant farms. Yeah. Um. Uh. But it, it differs from place to place. How big was was the farm that you grew up on? Um, it probably wasn't very big in terms of um acreage or the amount of cows and stuff like that. Probably a couple of hundred, oh. um, because it was just my dad that worked on it. Um, but yeah, it was enough to kind of feed the family and look after us and and stuff like that. But I think now, if I if I'd been older, um, and a bit wiser, I would definitely love the opportunity to have ran the farm and done that and followed on his footsteps. But hey ho, when you're fifteen, sixteen. You don't really know the difference, do you? <laughs> oh no, definitely. And and that um that that's, it's funny you brought that up, but that very specific idea of like you know should I should I when I go to university should I go into agriculture um is is often sort of you know the sort of first thing that people think of, and yeah. actually having farmer parents who encourage you to do something else as I'm as as you know is actually quite common, right? You yeah. know, it's it's there. It's not exactly that they often want a better life for you. They're just like, this is a very hard one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I've had, I've got friends obviously in the farming industry as well. And their parents have said, 
well, if you want to be a farmer, go off to university, get an, an, another career, like get a qualification behind you. And then if you still want to come back and farm, then we'll talk about it. So, um, but yeah, my parents never really gave me that option. It was university for something else. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, I was, I was actually looking at your LinkedIn profile when I was preparing for this interview. And I saw that a lot of your, um, a lot of the, it, it, at least from what I can tell from the job descriptions, is that a lot mm -hmm. of your jobs from the beginning were very kind of rubber hits the road roles, you know, where it's like this workforce of 2000 people is, you know, changing to a new type of laptop or IT infrastructure yeah. or something like that. And like, there you are, like taking the calls, probably yeah. walking up to their cubicle or, or <laughs> workstation or what have you. And like, you know, you know, going, did you remember to turn it on? Um, <laughs> You know, yeah, but yeah, but, but all, all the but all the way then to product development. Um, uh, and was there something that was that was that something that you found yourself kind of you know thrown into, or was it something that you found yourself drawn to? Um, I think I've probably had a very traditional route in terms of IT in the apprenticeship. So I talk about you know I started off at the help desk, I was at the coalface of it all. You know, like you said, answering all the calls, and then. I just gradually built up my skill set and moved through the roles. Like if you think about um, IT, you probably have the traditional first level, second level, third level kind of um, support that tickets go through. So I've done that journey. I've moved through those roles um, and, and really just kind of built my career up by learning, by doing um, and, and taking it where it's taken me. Um, some of the options on my CV have been the wrong choices that I've taken and then I've had to change direction slightly. And then others have been opportunistic and um, just right time, right place, knowing the right people. Um, so yeah, lots of hard graft and a little bit of luck along the way as well. And for people who might not be familiar actually, but who are probably interested, you know, what actually are those, those levels? Is it like, you know, person who takes the, has the customer contact, yep. reports it up to a project manager who then, you know, kind of triages it and prioritizes it. Is that is that the kind of structure that you're talking about? Yeah, very much. So your first level will be the people that are on your help desk. So the people that answer your the phone call or the email. So they'll take your initial details, um, any error messages. So just like you say, triage it um, and potentially be able to help you. So if it's a known problem, they might have um, workarounds to kind of solve it instantly for you at that first point of contact. If not, they will pass it on to the level two engineers um, and your level two engineers are probably a bit more experienced um, and have more time to spend on calls. Um, traditionally on the help desk, the phone's going all the time. So you're constantly having to, you know, put a phone call down, next one up type thing. Um, second level engineers will also have the uh, ability to potentially go out on site and actually see you. So physically be at your desk um, well, at least in the past, when we were all physically in the same office space, um, your level two engineers would be able to go out to you. Um, and again, if they didn't know how to fix it, they would escalate it to the third level. And that would be your most experienced um, engineers um, that could either, again, spend even more time on the problem trying to fix it um, or escalate it with the suppliers. They would have the, the kind of contacts with the suppliers to, to fix any third party issues and stuff like that. So it's yeah, just, just like you would expect, the three levels of kind of triage. Your third level would be the very top level. If they couldn't fix it, um, chances are it was really broken or um, they had to do something bigger. It was a bit of maybe a project that had to be implemented to fix it. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of three levels. 
Um, it's curious. I, I do. I do a little bit of a little bit of that that for Lean Pub myself. That kind of that kind of thing. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's you know, it's important to understand your own product and the products, the yeah. problems that people are having, and the, and the you know feature requests that they have and stuff like that. But one one sort of one of the curious. I mean, I know you you don't do that kind of thing so much anymore, obviously. But you know, one of the curious dimensions of that kind of work is that it's all negative. You know what I mean? From yeah. at least at least the the thing that initiates an action is all mm -hmm. negative. Um, yeah. Do you have any way of handling that that was unique to you or um I think I was very lucky to be honest um when I worked in the help desk so I worked with a great bunch of older women who weren't technical but they were absolutely shit hot on customer service they knew how to interact with people they knew how to calm people down they knew the processes they had very well-regarded processes on being able to take a fall. Everybody that phoned up the help desk knew how to, they kind of knew the questions they were going to ask. So a lot of them were prepared for all of that and they knew the process and they knew that if we couldn't fix it, we would we would do our damnedest to try and um, push it along and things like that. So I had a really good grounding in customer service. And I often think that in the IT industry nowadays, we're so focused on the technology. We're so focused on learning what tech box I need to tick inside Azure to make something work. We forget about the human element inside Azure, eh, sorry, inside the IT industry. And we forget that we're actually trying to solve pe problems for people who do jobs with the computers and the systems that we design. So I think I've been very fortunate and I learned really good customer service skills, to be honest, from those women on the help desk. And I think that's yeah, you get a lot of negativity, but again, if you know how to answer those calls and if you if you know how to separate yourself like personally from them, because these people are not attacking you, they're attacking the the, the crappy computers or the systems that have uh, broken down on them. Um, and if you know how to do that, then you can do your job really well, to be quite honest. That's really interesting, actually. Um, whenever I whenever I'm sort of calling up because I've encountered a problem, you know, it's barely calling, obviously, but you know, whenever I'm yeah. contacting, I always try and be very clear that you know. I know it's not you. <laughs> I know, I know yeah. you're not responsible for this. You know, I'm, I, you're the point of contact to hopefully help me, um, you know, yeah. get, get over, get over this issue, but not everybody's like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, some people really don't, they've never had the experience of being on the other end of the, the call as it were, or they just don't maybe have that much of an imagination or actually it can be very random. They can be in psychological or emotional difficulty for, for, yeah. for various reasons. Um, do you have any sort of, you know, go-to techniques for sort of, sort of handling people when you realize like right off the bat that they're, or I mean, again, from the past, but when, you know, when they're, when they're kind of a little bit coming from a bad place. Um, I think it's just keeping the emotion out of it and making sure that like you're, if you're phoning them, the tone of the voice is very neutral, very calming. Um, I don't think raising your voice as much as you want to and as much as I have wanted to and um, in the past it's not going to help the situation. It's just going to make it worse. Um, so yeah, it's all about just trying to keep them calm. Um, and yeah, often apologizing, which again, it's not my fault and things like that, but apologizing to someone saying, I'm, I'm sorry, you're having problems. I appreciate it. You know, um, causing an issue with your boss or your deadline or whatever. Um, but we'll try our best. You know, it's that reassuring chat that you would just give anybody in a stressful situation because as you say, they're probably phoning up and if they're really angry, it's because they're getting crap from elsewhere or, or they're missing a deadline or, you know, they're just, other things are happening. Family life is clashing with work and things like that. So yeah, 
you escalating the situation, swearing at them, shouting at them, raising your voice, being short with them is not not going to help it. Um, you know, and that, that's not to say that I'm an angel because the minute I hang up that phone call or in that email, I will then go and have a bitch with the person sitting beside me or the colleagues, you know, and, and moan about that person. But moaning to the person that's like shouting at you is not going to help ever um, the situation. So it's just about trying to stay calm and take that personal emotion out of the situation um, as much as you can. So that's what I try to do, whether it always works, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much for sharing that. It's very interesting. Um, if, if, if one has ever been a weird customer, one has become a story um, <laughs> for whoever had yeah. to deal with you that they told later and they were probably saving it up while they were talking to you and trying to remember the details along the way. Yeah. Um, but, but it is actually really interesting. You mentioned that it, it's, it's a detail, but it's a very important one, which is the apology. Just saying, I'm sorry um, to someone who's in trouble just completely changes things usually 99% of the time and often turns it into an apology on their part. Yeah. Because yeah. The, when, when the person's kind of, I call it the hot cloud, like when they're kind of running away with themselves, mm. you know, they, they're, they're not thinking, they're not, they're not thinking about things being a, a two-way street kind of thing. Yeah. And the apology makes it clear that this is a two-way street, that there is a... You, the, the other person regards you as a person. And once that happens, they can regard you as a person. And then, yep. you know, things go. And actually often like the people who start out the angriest end up can end up being the nicest. Yep. Um, they just need, they need to have a little mirror of, of <laughs> but, but what they see in the mirror, I don't know, a bad analogy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. They need yeah something, I know what you mean. Yeah. Some, someone nice on the other end in, in spite of their own anger um, can yep. really change the situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned that um, you know, you sort of sort of leveled up, you know, sort of starting from one one level in in IT and moving up to sort of you know the mm -hmm. sort of senior level that you're at now. Um, and I'm very curious, did you do that by switching jobs to level up, or did you level up within organizations sometimes? Um, I jumped around. To be honest, when you you look at my early career, um, I jumped around quite a bit. Sometimes I even moved laterally to another company because it was maybe a bigger company or it was a different situation to be able to get different experience or different exposure to IT systems. Um, so yeah, the, the early part of my CV is is quite jumpy. Um, to be honest, I think I was in a job maybe eighteen months maximum um, at the start, just to build up that experience and exposure. Um, to different people different situations and to push myself outside my comfort zone because you can get very familiar with with a, a certain job so I didn't want to do that I I kind of had ambitions of doing the best that I could so it was all about trying to move across and if I had to leave a company unfortunately I did that um, as much as it pained me and um, to leave like friends and stuff behind but yeah um, I, I moved um, quite a bit in my early career and uh, just a just a general question did you did you stay in Glasgow the whole time um yeah I think all of my jobs have been Glasgow based or had a company or had an office in say Glasgow um a few companies maybe were more Edinburgh based and then I was based in client sites in Glasgow um but yeah I think I've always worked I'm trying to remember now I've always worked <laughs> in and around Glasgow I don't yeah a few times I worked in Edinburgh <laughs> Um, yeah, and and uh, eventually you you uh, landed a, a job with Microsoft. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's a there's a there's a, a video that I might link to in the in the transcription where you talk about leaving leaving that job. Um, yeah. But in in the, that video, you talk about what it took to get that job um, a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk. It looks, people people sometimes like to hear what it's like to get jobs at big companies like that. 
What was yeah. the interview process like for you getting getting a job at Microsoft? Oh, it was hellish. Um, so yeah, the Microsoft job interview process is quite hellish. It took me years to even believe in applying. So any advice I would give to anybody is just apply because it's just a company like any other company. It may be your dream company, but just go and hit that apply button and submit your application and start the process because I never landed a job the first time I applied. I never landed a job the first time I interviewed with Microsoft. It was the third different job and third interview process that I'd been through with them that I then got offered the job um, and I think to a certain degree it's a learning process for the job um, when you apply for these big companies because I think they're pretty much all the same um, there's often that first telephone interview to check that you're okay and you're you're pretty coherent and you've not lined too much on your CV and um, then there's a the second one um, which is more of a kind of technical one they'll, they'll ask you certainly for the jobs I've interviewed at Microsoft I've been around can you name some technologies can you answer these simple questions then there's been maybe a more detailed one around um, presenting something to them um, and then you maybe meet another manager so there's three or four stages um, throughout the process um, and certainly when they did it in person it was quite harrowing because I had to fly down to like London down in their head offices and go there and have the logistics of flying down um, you know, driving to the place, trying to find a hotel, then making sure I was on the site and then realizing you were on the site of Microsoft and inside the offices of Microsoft, your dream company. Like that's just mind blowing. The first time I ever did that. Wow. I think the occasion got to me and that's why I interviewed really poorly the first time I did it. Um, I probably interviewed very poorly the second time um, as well, because I never got offered the job. But by the third time, I was kind of in a do you know what? If they don't want me this time, then they're lost. I, I know I'm good enough type thing. Um, and I went in with a completely different attitude. I also dressed very differently. So the first two job interviews I went to at Microsoft on site, I was in brand new like shirt, suit trousers, suit jacket, you know, proper shoes and all that kind of stuff. I'd went as if I had a court date <laughs> um, and was trying to impress someone. And by the third time I went down in jeans, trainers and, and a comfortable shirt, like I look smart, I look presentable, but I was very much more comfortable in my own clothes, not something I just bought for the occasion. Um, and I got hired. So, yeah, it, I think the other interview processes that I went through at Microsoft were very much teaching me how to be myself, if that makes sense. And by the third time I'd nailed that, I think. Um, well, they hired me, so I must have done something right on that occasion. But yeah, and that's why I always say to people, start applying because these processes are never easy, whether you interview for Microsoft. I think AWS have a five-hour interview kind of process, which is quite harrowing to understand. So you kind of have to have a bit of practice or a bit of, you know, not being overawed by the occasion often from these kind of companies. So yeah, just apply, try it out. If you get knocked back, go again. Just keep going until we, or, or until you feel that you're you're not um you know you're able to do your best if that makes sense Len. <laughs> oh yeah no it does thank you very much for sharing that actually I'm, I'm sure um uh there will be people listening to this who will have been experiencing flashbacks like I did while you were describing that experience um you know specifically you know scouting out the building in advance in the big city you know uh making sure you know where the entrances are and then like going in on the big day and getting signed in and the id badge or what have you and then waiting until someone calls you up and yeah. you know the multi-stage process and things like that with so much on the line 
um, mm -hmm. is, is an experience I think a lot of us have had. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, they're, they're unforgettable experiences, mm -hmm. um, you know, because they're the first time they're sort of you know, the first time that you've gone through them. Uh, you yeah. don't really know what's going to happen. And the, I think part of it is that there's this huge machine that's kind of, you're being pulled into, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and when you sort of realize that, like how kind of impersonal kind of has the wrong connotation, just kind of, there's a process that you're a part of now. Yeah. um that that's yeah. happening uh can can be very kind of bracing to experience that um I actually you mentioned dress um there that that's actually a really big big challenge for a lot of people and um uh I wanted to ask you about has the um pandemic and sort of the sort of work from home thing changed dress codes basically for professional interaction in your experience um Probably to a certain degree. So the last few years before the pandemic, when I was meeting customers, I was very much dressing down, to be honest. I was going in jeans and trainers, like smart jeans and smart trainers and, you know, a shirt or a T-shirt that was maybe branded with a company that I worked for. So I was very much almost... I've, you know, I very much had the mindset of I've reached a, a level of seniority. How I dress should not matter about what I'm about to tell you. Um, that was the attitude I was taking, and it was kind of working. Um, I hadn't got any in trouble um, much. Um, nowadays, I think with the virtual, people are probably a, a little um, more relaxed about it. I can't even remember the last time I went on a virtual call and people were wearing like shirts and stuff like that. Most people were wearing their favorite football or soccer t-shirts or in their gym gear or you know in in their most relaxed their favorite hoodie um, and stuff like that so and it doesn't bother me like I don't I don't care how you dress um as such as long as you know what you're talking about um and I hope that everybody else would do the exact same thing but I obviously know that there are some people that don't think like that so um yeah, but I think most of the IT industry is very relaxed. People are well aware that half our wardrobes are corporate t-shirts from conferences or giveaways and things like that. So it's not it's not necessarily the same, I think, as um, other industries and other departments and stuff like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, as as I I've, I've sort of got the sort of pet theory that it's not um it's not sort of specific, but it's just that the way you dress should indicate sort of thoughtfulness and like a kind of like, you know, you're, you're aware of the nature of the situation that you're in now. Yeah. Um, and that, that sounds kind of abstract and maybe it's easy to say when you're not kind of 19 going for your first job and kind of <laughs> have no, no, no sort of like, you know, basis of experience yeah. for it, but like thoughtfulness and, and the way you behave obviously um, sort of matters more than anything else in your interview. Right. You know, like, uh yep. sussing out for example whether it might be okay to swear um yep. uh, <laughs> you know you never you, you know like i mean if you can show that kind of you have if you have that level of awareness you know looking people in the eye for example things like that um yep. uh you know not not being too uncomfortable but not being too familiar either um <laughs> and as as you yep. as you said you said you know <laughs> having experience doing it really is the only way to know um yeah. and uh and remembering that like you know if you if you go through an interview process and you don't make it, you can always try again um, yeah. and, uh, and, and, you know, save it up. And actually one, I've never done it myself, but one common piece of uh, advice that people give is if you have a chance, if you don't get the job, ask mm -hmm. questions of the person who interviewed you. If, if you know, it's email or what have you like, Hey, you know, any advice. And actually often yeah. people are like more than, more than happy 
as long as you're not like asking like 10 questions, you know what I mean? You know, if they're just like any advice, they're like, people like to give advice. Um, it makes yeah. them feel good about themselves and it makes them feel helpful. Um, so that, that can actually really help. Um, one last thing before we go on to talk about your book and, and I guess mm -hmm. some more about, you know, in talking about your book and your current, your current role are probably sort of more yeah. or less kind of the same thing. Um, but, uh, you're, you're a STEM ambassador for stem.org.uk, I noticed in your in your mm -hmm. bio. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about why you sort of signed up for that and, and what you do as part of that. Yeah. So STEM means science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And it's all about helping the next generation get started in one of those careers. Um, obviously, I represent the tech element of that. Um, but I wanted to do that because I don't remember anyone really been a good role model for me um, at school or throughout my academic career um, until I got to the very last year of my high school um, around IT. And I never had a female teacher. Um, I think there was one lecturer um, at university who was female, but other than that, it was all male. And in my class, there was two females and I was one of them. Um, and I just remember being... I never felt isolated until I got into those situations and I started looking around and, and and things like that. So I don't want the next generation to have that same same feeling. And often when I talk to schools, um, I ask the kids like who wants to to fall into IT and things like that. And all the boys, their hands shoot up in the air. They're all desperate to do it. Um, and they all want to be video game developers. They want to make the next Halo or FIFA or something like that. Um, and that's fine and 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 that but then when I asked the girls why they don't they aren't interested in tech they're like I don't like video games and technologies for boys and that crushes me because I never thought that um and I I don't know why this generation or you know the, the kids today think that so I want to make sure that I'm trying to represent a good portion of the IT industry and show them that there are women in the IT industry and you don't need to like gaming um, to be in the IT industry because let's face it, there are thousands of career paths to follow inside the IT industry and um, they don't even touch video games at all. Um, so yeah, it's about just being a good role model for the next generation and making sure that um, at some point there's another generation behind me so that I can retire. <laughs> uh, and so do you, do, you go to, do you go to schools and talk to kids directly and things like that as part of it? Yeah, pre-pandemic, I went to a lot of schools in the, the local area, um, either through activities through the STEM organisation or I would reach out to teachers. A lot of teachers are now on Twitter, so um, I've done my, my kind of networking on Twitter and reached out to a few schools and stuff like that and went to classrooms and, and talked to them about my career um, and things like that. I've I've done a few virtually, um, which has been absolute chaos because the kids are all shouting questions at once and the teacher's trying to calm them down. Um, but yeah, I think it's just about showing them the possibility. Um, the one thing that I, I tell them is that IT translates throughout the world. Like IT here in Scotland is the exact same as IT over in Canada with you or it's in Australia. It doesn't change. Um, maybe some of the terminology might change, but it's fundamentally the same. So it's a career that can take you across the world and has taken me across the world as well. So um, that kind of opens their eyes. I see some of their eyes kind of like, you know, properly opening up about how they could travel the world and, and things like that and see the world um, through that. So I don't think 
um, we necessarily teach kids the right things about IT. Um, so I hopefully try and fill a bit of that void as much as I can um, as one person on a mission. <laughs> Actually, um, uh, you said a few things there that make me want to delay talking about your book a little bit for a few more minutes. Um, <laughs> one, one of them is, um, you, so you mentioned getting to travel the world and talk on stage and things like that. I know you mm -hmm. talked at Microsoft Ignite and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so for people, for people listening who might be like, how do I become, how do I get to be the person on stage? Yeah. Um, what was your what was your path to being a, a speaker? Um, so I actually started the Glasgow Your Youth Group, as you said in the introduction, in 2017. Um, and that was a scary experience for me because I'd never done public speaking. I'd never done organised groups before and, and was worried about leading a band of techies into this user group. Um, but once I started doing it, I obviously had to stand up in front of the group and start going, the fire exits are to your left and the toilets are to your right. And, you know, the food's over here and be nice to everybody and introduce the speakers and all the kind of stuff you do at these kind of events, um, which was massively nerve wracking and was probably my very first speaking gig. Um, but then people started saying, well, why are you not speaking at events? Because you've got great stories to tell. Um, you know, you've got great experience. Why are you not being a speaker at other events? And I was like, mm, never considered it. Why, why would I do it? Why would anyone want to listen to me? So eventually someone was looking for a speaker and they asked me um, and I had no way out. They cornered me and basically I had to say yes. Um, and I went, went on from speaking from there that was a local event here in Glasgow and from there it just kind of grew I started volunteering for more user groups I then started going to conferences and um, then did international conferences um, and things like that so it's just it's one of those organic things that I never planned out I never thought um, I would do but here I am I think about 96 talks later um, I have been speaking <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 so fantastic. And actually, the um, I mean, typically it's um, a person's first sort of move is go to start go go to meetups, not not create one. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you kind of you jump you jump that first step, uh, you leapfrogged it right away. Uh, yeah. no, that's so interesting. And and uh, you know, a lot of it is um, you know, just just start doing it. Um, uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's easy to say and hard to do. Um, but but there it is. And actually, sometimes yeah. being cornered or pushed, um, yeah. uh, by by circumstances, um, can really help. Uh, yeah. you know, to sort of to sort of get you on the way, but basically, I mean, you know, for anyone who wants to be the person on the stage, you could you you can do it. Um, yeah. uh, there there are paths. People want want you up there if you if you if you do have interesting things to say, and you probably do. Um, yeah. and actually, on that note as well, I wanted to ask. Um, so uh, this this sort of became um a kind of uh sort of subtopic of the podcast over just over two years ago, unfortunately. But um, how did the how did the pandemic affect? affect all of that for you um so obviously grounded me um uh, and i've i've been presenting from this room for most of the pandemic or all of the pandemic um for the user group it affected us massively obviously because we couldn't physically meet but we turned it into virtual meetings like every other event did um we tried in vain to keep it going with the same cadence that we had in, in person but the engagement wasn't there, the kind of community spirit wasn't there, the fun just kind of wasn't there. We were getting the learning portion that you get with a user group, but we weren't getting that community fun. Um, so we kind of tailed it back, but we've been back in person now um, since April, March or April this year. So we've we've been quite um, lucky in that sense. Um, and we've had 
really great support from the regulars who were with us before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And then we've got a bunch of new people that have never heard of us. And um, even though we've been going for five years, they'd never heard about the group and are now joining us and, and being part of that community. So yeah, we, it's almost been a benefit to us in a certain way because it's almost like we relaunched um, kind of, I want to say post-pandemic, but I know it's not post-pandemic. Um, but yeah, we've kind of had a, a, an influx of new people thanks to the kind of relaunch of in-person events. So yeah, it's been fun. Oh, I'm I'm really glad to hear that you're you're uh, back together in person and that um you know turning turning it into a kind of uh, naturally kind of turning it into, into an opportunity to relaunch is yep. a really great really great story. Um, yep. there are so many people who are sort of desperate, you know, to to get get back and 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 in that it was that long enough time that there are people who are like you know they've been waiting two years for to have this sort of meetup experience that they heard so much about when they were sort of yep. in school or something like that, um and and to and to finally get a chance to do that must have been amazing, um. Yep. Finally, moving on to talk about your book, um, <laughs> Developer Relations for my, my fault, uh, Developer Relations for Beginners, What to Know and How to Get Started. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what uh, developer relations are. Um. So yeah, developer relations is this kind of, I want to say new, but it's not necessarily a new um, area in IT where you take technical experts and talk to your audience and it's often seen as a marketing kind of funnel um, a different way to talk to your audiences because it is technical people. I am technical. Um, I've been in the industry and I'm talking back to the audience that I once was um, for a lot of the IT industry. So, yeah, it's about engaging with your audience um, and helping them either understand how your company that you work for can help them solve problems. So when I worked for Microsoft, obviously I was uh, an advocate of all the Microsoft solutions, primarily um, Azure, um, but I was a representative trying to help people um, understand the technology and, and things like that. Um, and now at Octopus, I, I kind of do the same thing, um, helping people understand the kind of DevOps culture um, and how Octopus can kind of plug into that um, and just generally be this is going to sound dead cringe, but be a thought leader in that area um, and, and be recognisable. Um, for me, developer relations is all about helping the IT community um, and being there and being that thought leader, being that go-to person um, and, and putting out good content um, that, yeah, just helps people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And is this, uh, the, the, I mean, the, the marketing aspect of it is, so is this kind of uh, the sales aspect of it is actually kind of, kind of, I, I find it quite interesting. Um, So for example, is this the kind, like yeah. I've never worked for a big IT company myself, right? But is this the kind of thing where like, kind of like Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are trying to like land a whale and <laughs> there's teams from each one that are sort of like being, you know, sort of directed by sales to talk to the people working at the company that's actually going to have to, because yeah. it, like it's sales at the level of the people who are making the sale. It's your job at the level of the people mm. who are going to have to live with whatever yeah. the executives decide. And so your job partly is to sort of like teach people who either have had this imposed on them or who may have this imposed on them, you know, there's no cloud solution or what have you, like, this is yeah. how it works. This is how it's good. This is how it's going to make your day better. Is it that, yeah. that kind of thing? Yeah, in a sense. Um, so developer relations will either sit under marketing or it'll sit under engineering, um, which is, is really hard and, and probably a weird place for it to sit in either department. But it is about helping that, dispelling the myths that they may have had. So maybe like you say, the salesperson has went in, sold 
sold absolutely dream and then we're trying to fix kind of dial that back and actually implement it properly um or just helping general areas um so you know how do you get into cloud you don't have to necessarily you know be a azure customer to want to contact me so i i created a lot of beginner content and talked to a lot of people who had never used azure before it was just about driving that awareness um, that potentially might lead to sale, you know, five years down the line when they left university and, and worked for a company. So there are multifacets of it. Um, at Microsoft, we had different teams that talked to different audiences. So we had like your ILT developers, we had ones for infrastructure. So that was kind of my area. We had ones for developers, we had Kubernetes people, we had a whole academia team um, that talked to students and things like that. So it can differ depending on the company you work for and the scale of the company as well that you work for. Um, but yeah, developer relations is, is, is a fun, it's a fun area to kind of dive into and define. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's very interesting. And, and so do you, do you sort of play the role also between like, kind of like the people who are actually working on the product and the people who are using it and sort of communicating back and forth between them as well? Yeah. So that's very much a, a good area to, to work in as well, because um, at certain levels, every company will talk direct to a customer. So if you spend X amount of money with with a company, they'll 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 bring their engineering teams into you, and you can feed them directly back. But let's face it, not every customer will have that amount of money to still to spend every month on the product or whatever, and not have that direct connection with the product groups and the engineering teams. So that's often where a developer advocate can kind of come into play. Um, somebody can find me on Twitter. They can then reach out to me. My job is to partly have those conversations with them, try and distill either their feedback or introduce them into the engineering team directly so they can have that direct link depending on what the idea is, et cetera. Um, and equally, often if a product is developed and maybe the customers aren't happy, my job can be to try and um, advocate for why the company has made that decision and why that feature was put over another feature, et cetera, and be that kind of go-to person that that talks to both unhappy parties or whatever or um, misunderstood parties and tries to, yeah, get the message across. Um, so, yeah, maybe spokesperson is another way of putting a part of the role within um, advocacy. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, one, one thing you spell out in the book is the difference between these kind of roles under uh, under developer relations, like advocacy, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, but there's also events, community management, yeah. content documentation, and things like that. Um, and advocacy is the is this one that seems to be the most kind of like yeah, I, I would imagine the kind of the taking the brunt. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> um, the advocates inside the developer relations department are often the most visible. They're the ones that are potentially on YouTube or at conferences or, you know, are writing the blog posts and things like that. But the developer relations team is made up of potentially tons of other people like you mentioned, community managers, events teams, um, you know, and things like that, um, that make up the full of developer relations. Again, it would depend on the scale of the company um, and things like that, because sometimes your developer relations is a is a one person job and you have to put those different hats on um, and manage all of that expectation around what comes with DevRel. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to you that so you're um, uh, very clear in the book that although, of course, you know, you're working for a company and the company's trying to make money, but you say you're very explicit and you say, quote, it should not be about selling, end quote. Um, it's yeah, about it... helping people do what they need to do. Yeah, um, for me, 
I shouldn't necessarily be that demand generation. I shouldn't be the salesperson. There are pro- there are better people that can do sales than me. I'm not very good at sales. Um, so yeah, it's more about teaching and helping, um, which will potentially lead to sales. I'm not even going to pretend that, you know, that's not why I put the link at the bottom. Go and have a free trial of Azure or go and have a free trial of Octopus Deploy. You know, um, it can potentially lead to a sale, but that shouldn't be the motivation for why I'm standing up on stage. The success of me standing up on stage shouldn't be measured by how many licenses I sell, um, because that's the wrong thing. That's a completely different job. That's that's the sales job. That's what salespeople are doing. That's what sales conferences are about. But, you know, um, my job should be about helping people, to be honest. Um, it's really interesting, actually. There's a very I was sort of looking looking around trying to find a very concrete example of of the kind of work that you do. And I found I mean you've got all these great videos on 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 YouTube. Yeah. And I found I found one of these Octo chats that you that you do. Um <laughs> and uh so for the company that you work for, yeah. Octopus Deploy. And it's mm-hmm. it's great. It's once a month that I, I gather on like on a Friday, you'll interview yeah. someone from the company and you know, sort of one on one. Uh, talking about the news of the the month and and, and it's it's it yeah. was I just watched a couple of them and they were great. I mean, I don't work for that company, <laughs> but like I thought if I did, how great would it be to just wind down for half an hour yeah. watching two smart people from the company talk to each other? But that that idea of of, of relations, right? You know that that yeah. is just sort of embodied in that that fun practice. Yeah, that's a fun little show that we do, like you say, once a month, and we cover off things like octopus news we talk about if there's any new features or if we're looking for product feedback um and then we we start to talk about industry news and and random stuff um so um it could be anything from the latest price of the playstation i think the playstation 5 price went up in the uk and, and things like that and we talk about things like that to um you know the latest project uh, product that microsoft might have launched or gcp or whatever it may be so it's it's a kind of random mix of just two people having a chat having some fun sharing with the community um yeah that's that's kind of what i want to embody in as an advocate having fun helping people and sharing the knowledge and learning things as well as i go yeah no it was it was they're great and one one thing um uh that I found sort of quite interesting is actually like people getting an opportunity to be passionate about their job, you know, is, is great. You know, they're like, the, finally I get to talk about it with somebody, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, here's, here's something I learned last week. Wasn't isn't that interesting, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, just kind of getting to be on a show uh, must, must just be kind of fun. Yeah, it's fun because let's face it, it, we probably have these conversations in Slack or on, on private messages. So, why not turn the camera on and, and, and do it, you know, live to an audience. <laughs> um, speaking of actually creating content and audiences and things like that, mm-hmm. for the last part of the uh, podcast, we always talk to people if they're, if they're content creators, we talk to them about their content creator kind of life and, and, and yeah. how they do that and things like that. And so you, you, you've got your blog and you've got, you, you make a lot of videos. How did you get into that, into the techie last kind of brand and, and making videos, which by the way, I think maybe people might not know, but you do that all, that's all on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah um, my blog and my youtube are all passion passion side products um that i do in my own time um but yeah the blog came first so the blog probably came around maybe eight nine years ago um and it was very much a, a dumping ground for problems that i'd solved that i didn't 
you know, weren't documented anywhere or I would forget. Um, it was just that kind of, you know, here's a bit of random things that I fixed at my workplace and, and I want to remember. So I'm going to put it on a blog that's publicly accessible. Um, so it's never had a great audience to start with until maybe about four years ago when I thought, right, let's let's make an effort here, Sarah, to actually engage with the community, share what I'm learning and, and get a little bit back from it as well. Um, and then probably about three years ago, um, like I, I was involved in the, the user group I was doing presenting, but the one thing that I didn't have in my kind of, you know, like skill set was talking to the camera and being confident in front of the camera. And I was worried that potentially that challenge would come up. Maybe I would have to present and they would have a camera on me and that would phase me or, you know, I'd get interviewed um, or whatever it may be. So I thought, let's start a YouTube channel. All the cool kids are doing it. So why not what, try it? Um, and that's where I came up with the idea of doing like a weekly um, video where I just turned on the camera and talked about the news or talked about my week and, and things that had happened in the role that I was doing. Um, and yeah, so the first couple of videos are really horrible. Like I've watched them back and, you know, I'm, I'm not looking in the right direction. The, the audio is horrible the camera's out of focus all all the things that you would imagine that you would the mistakes you would make um but then obviously I as I did it every week as I edited myself as I listened to myself I got better I got more confident um and I think I did those weekly videos for nearly 200 odd weeks or 200 odd videos of them um and then I kind of stopped I I kind of lost the, the interest in doing the weekly videos um, and moved to just more long-term content where I'd create like a five ten minute video on how to do something and that's kind of been my focus um so yeah it's just been an evolution of me trying something seeing how it goes and then trying something again and and things like that uh and do you um sort of obsessively watch you know your followers or views and things like that that's something that people sometimes talk about sort of having to having to psychologically manage when you're in that content creator kind of <laughs> space uh, yep I have, I think, especially during the pandemic when I wasn't getting distracted, you know, by life um, as such, watching my followers go up and watching my YouTube channel go up and obsessing why one video only got three views versus one that got like 100 or 200 um, and really like trying to learn everything I could about the YouTube algorithm and how that worked and, and things like that. I got a bit obsessive about it and it was mentally challenging when I, I didn't see the results that I wanted from it or expected from it or assumed I would get. Um, but now I, I'm i not going to say I don't care because there's a tiny bit of me that still cares about it, but I definitely don't obsess about it. Um, I've kind of uninstalled the, the apps off my phone so that I can't really check it um, and things like that. So, mm. yeah, I, I went through a period of obsession, but I'm trying not to because that's not, it's not a good, good, good place to be. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've actually, one of the reasons I asked is because like that, that, that actually is something I've talked with people about, um, who, you know, particularly if they, if they get some success, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you kind of develop a kind of baseline, if you, if you know what I mean, yeah. that you're kind of like need, you need to hit, um, yeah. regarding the YouTube algorithm, um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you in a moment if you have any advice, because I, I only know from the consumer side, apparently YouTube thinks I'm an awful person, um, <laughs> based on the videos that it tries to show me um oh, and it, okay. wa it wants me to click on um right. uh you know like lots of <laughs> lots of kind of alt-right intellectual oh, wow. dark web stuff yeah i don't know i don't know i don't know why 
That is really bad. I'm laughing here and I didn't realize you were going to say it. No, no, I hardly use YouTube at all. And like, but whenever I go on, it's just like, you know, that nonsense um, is is just every, every other video. Like, for example, like, like when I, and it's like, actually, basically the only, the only time I spend on YouTube is Googling or is Googling, is searching, searching for podcast guests when I'm doing my research. So I'll type in, I'll type in Sarah Lean and then, and then it'll be like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro. And (laughs) (laughs) so do you, do you have any advice for? For people who are creating content on YouTube, what what can you do? Is it is it in the title of your video that helps? Is it the content of the description? Is there anything that you can any advice yeah. you can give for people who are trying to get get viewers? It's it's such a black art to be quite honest. How to you know, no one really knows how the algorithm works. But things that typically work is like um, good headlines, get to straight to the point. You know, if you're solving a problem, um, tell them you're solving a problem. Like I have a video up there. Um, that is how to delete a repository in GitHub. That's the title, how to delete a repository in GitHub. There's no sensationalism there. There's no hiding the fact that this is exactly the problem that I'm about to solve in this really short video. Um, My thumbnail is very simple. Um, Description, very simple. You know, it tells you about the problem. It's not telling you my life story. And then at the very end, I'm like, I'm going to solve you this problem. Um, The keywords and tags that I've used again are the search queries that you would get if you were if someone was putting that into youtube how to delete a github repository you know there's there's no hidden hidden way to do that um so yeah some people will say keep it simple you know tell the people what you're doing and then other people will be like oh tell them like sensational make it clickbait and, and things like that but i think in the tech industry people are trying to find a solution to a problem they're trying to answer a question they haven't been able to find because a product's ui is really bad or or they're just you know tired or whatever or not experienced enough um so trying to keep it simple works for the tech industry i think um from some of the success that i've had um but it is it's it's a bit of a shit show with that algorithm sometimes it works and other times you're just like what did i do wrong today <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. It's funny you mentioned though. Actually, those the the very specific things that actually step by step show people how to do things, um, are 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 really like you know one of the ones I watched that I didn't I didn't know how to do this, but you can you can file search in GitHub by typing T, on GitHub. If you're yeah. on in your browser at GitHub.com, you type T and a search shows up, and you can type and there's this fuzzy file search, and that was like I was like wow yeah. I. I that was the best minute of my day uh, in terms of productivity, um, uh, and and those kinds of things can really help. One of one of my most most sort of successful blog posts is about like um, from from LeanPub is about like uh, it's from years ago, but it's got like huge amount of views or, or of um, uh, readers compared to our normal ones, which was how to get how to use Dropbox to get an ebook on your iPhone. Okay. Um, you know, kind of thing, because it can sometimes be tr- in the past, it's yeah. better now, but in the past, it was kind of tricky sometimes to get certain mm-hmm. kinds of content on your phone. Um, and that just got like this extraordinary amount of views because people are searching specifically for that. Uh, and if they can find yeah. something that actually step by step, you know, sort of in a video, sort of like shot by shot, shows them how to do it. That's that's just amazing kind of content. Um, yeah. uh, the last question I always ask um, of a guest on the podcast, if they've done something on LeanPub is... Mm-hmm. Um, is is a selfish one, and it's um if there were one thing that you know when you were using LeanPub you were shouting at the screen about that we could fix for you, or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Um, I think my only complaint 
is the UI for an author. Like I couldn't, once I'd published my book, I couldn't find how to get back into the author dashboard because the dashboard had defaulted to like the buying, if that's, if I'm trying to remember right. Am I explaining that right, Len? Does that make sense to you? Oh, I think I know. No, no. People have people have. Um, we've gotten that feedback before. Um, it's 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 it, there's this inherently tricky thing when your site. I mean, you know, YouTube has it. I mean, they're way bigger than we are. But obviously, if there's like if there's both the creating and the consuming happening on the site, there's just this inherent problem of like, what do you prioritize in yeah. terms of what people see? How do you get to the place? And if you're a content creator, how do you get to that place? Um, uh, in in LeanPub, what we have is like the sort of I call it the kind of escape hatch. There's like a hamburger menu on the top right. And if you yeah. click there on the, there'll be a, like sort of three columns, leftmost column has these sort of names in it, like a library, which is where you go. That's pretty clear, yeah. but, but we have author um, yeah. and author is that gets you to, that'll open up a little menu with your author dashboard and stuff like that. Um, yeah. It's a bit, it's a, one thing that like, you know, we're still, we're always working on it as, as you know, everybody always is, but like, you know, if you click on library, you'll see a menu that shows like, books, bundles, courses, and corsets. And if you click on author, of course, you'll see, you'll yeah. see books, <laughs> bundles, courses, and corsets. So it's it's actually kind of not visually, there's no visual yeah. cue other than the highlighting of the word author as opposed to the word library. So that actually is something that we've got feedback before from. And I really appreciate that because, you know, sometimes people, I mean, that is, you know, um, when people shouting at LeanPub, where, where the hell's my damn book? I published it. <laughs> And I can't find it. Um, the yeah. main, by the way, for anyone listening who's who's curious, the main, actually, the the main way that people usually do that is they just go to the landing page for their book, and if you're signed in as the author, you'll have a little edit button that you'll yeah. see on the book cover image. <laughs> so that's instead of using our our sort of escape hatch menu, actually, a lot of people use that. They're just like, I'm just going to go to where my book is. If I'm signed in, I can click edit, and there I am, you know, in the author dashboard for my book. Uh, yeah. But thank you very much for that. We we always internalize <laughs> it when people say that because we know that it's like you know, that that's very important when we get a chance to hear about that from people. Um, yeah. Well, Sarah, um, thank you very much for taking time out of your evening uh, to talk to me and to talk to our audience. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as a platform for publishing your book. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.